Uh, we Walla Wallaites are delighted to be with you this Sabbath morning. It might have a little something to do with the weather differential between <laughs> Walla Walla and Sacramento, uh, but it has a mighty lot to, to, to do with just being with the saints at Grace Point this Sabbath, and it is delightful to be here. Uh, I uh, sat down this week for my uh, weekly meeting with the brand new Vice President of S- for Student Life at Walla Walla University, uh, a youngish man named Dr. Douglas Tilstra. And uh, I said to him, I am going to be speaking at uh, Grace Point Church in Rockland, California. Do you know that place? Uh, because it so happens that uh, a lot of years ago when this church was beginning, I was across the mountains pastoring at uh, the PUC church, and so I I knew about what was going on over here. So I invited him to send some greetings to you. So here they are. Greetings from an old friend and former pastor to some in the Grace Point Church family. This March 16 will be 27 years since we held our first Sabbath worship service in Rockland and opened the doors to what would become Grace Point. Lorraine and I treasure the friendships and memories from those early days of this church family. It was a mistake for me to ask him because we spent the next approximately 15 minutes listening to stories about some of you way back then. Uh, Meeting hundreds of community members at their homes, listening to the concerns and interests of our neighbors, shaping our mission to meet those needs, and so on. Reports of God's activity in and through Grace Point have reached me over the years with my return to the West Coast. I hope to visit and experience in person what God is doing through this vibrant congregation. May God continue to work marvelously in and through you, Pastor Doug Tilstra. So I've delivered that message, right? And uh, enjoyed those stories uh, very, very much. It is an unexpected reception. On January 13, 1997, American adventurer Stephen Fawcett begins his second solo attempt to circumnavigate the globe in a hot air balloon. Now, you might remember that on his sixth attempt in 2002, he succeeds, becoming the first to accomplish the feat. But in this second attempt, he takes off from Bush Stadium in St. Louis, piloting his balloon, Solo Spirit 2. He experiences in his bid to circumnavigate the globe in Solo 2, he experiences quite a number of hazards, including Muammar al-Qaddafi's attempt to blow him out of the sky. Six days Two hours and 10,360 miles later, Fawcett has set distance and endurance records for balloon flight. But detouring around Libya to avoid Muammar Gaddafi's threats has cost him fuel and he runs out, failing to circle the globe. And he sets his balloon down in a mustard field near the little village of Naanjar, India. Now, I want you to just imagine yourself to be a villager in that January day in 1997 in the little village of Naanjar in India. And I want you to stand there among your fellow villagers 
And, and imagine this moment. You live in a village that has no running water, no electricity, but like villages everywhere, plenty of superstition. You and your fellow villagers are Hindus, and your treasured mythology is replete with tales of gods coming down from the heavens. One of those gods, the monkey god Hanauman, is prophesied to streak across the heavens, leaving a trail of blazing fire. Stand there, stand there in that mustard field (laughs) with your family and friends and watch as Fawcett's balloon descends, a colossal, gleaming, silver object dazzlingly redirecting the rays of the sun. Watch as it clips a tree and is ripped to shreds. As Fawcett touches down, he has not a clue to the reception that awaits. A couple of thousand of villagers led by a local religious guru quickly assembled, rush the vehicle, convinced that it is a fire temple descending from the sky and containing the monkey god Hanelmu. When Fawcett emerges... They worship him. They offer him their best. Villager Shyam Badahur Singh reports, quote, We offered him pure cow's milk and we were pleased that he took two sips. Fawcett, with a shy grin and presumably a milk mustache worthy of a Got Milk commercial, tries to explain that he is Just an ordinary man. Just a man. It is a little like that in the first century village town of Lystra. The citizens of Lystra, you see, have their mythologies, their stories, and their icons. And among the stories circulating in the hill country of Lystra is this one. A long time ago, the gods Zeus and Hermes, disguised as men, visit the area. They visit a thousand homes, some of them grand mansions. They visit these thousand homes seeking accommodation and rest, but not one of those families, not one of those homes is willing to host them. And finally, they visit an elderly couple, Philemon and Baucis. And Philemon and Baucis live in a humble stick-and-reed cottage, and yet they invite the two disguised deities into their home, offer them the best hospitality their meager resources will allow. And eventually, Zeus and Hermes reveal to the couple that they are indeed gods, And while they punish the neighbors, the elderly couple is invited to request any blessing they would like. And they respond, We ask that we may be your priest and priestess and guard your temple forever. And their wish comes true. That was the story circulating in the hill country. With stories like that in mind, the residents of Lystra are on their toes wishing to avoid the fate of those who failed to recognize Zeus and Hermes. And they have a little concrete guidance 
for what those two gods would look like. Stone reliefs from the area depict the two gods. Zeus is portrayed as an elderly, bearded man commanding respect and worship. Hermes is portrayed as his sidekick, a younger male assistant. The residents of Nanjar, India, are primed for the appearance of Fawcett and his balloon. And the residents of Lystra are ready for the gray-bearded Barnabas and his younger colleague and spokesman, Paul. So trace with me this Sabbath day the testimony of faithfulness, faithfulness in discipleship left by these two apostles. Divinized to demonized. How to be a faithful disciple through it all. This incredible story in Acts chapter 14. First of all, these two Christian disciples are faithful in mission. Unlike Fawcett's flight, this is no solo endeavor. It is conducted by an evangelistic team, Paul and Barnabas, and their entrance to town is not nearly so dramatic as Fawcett's to India. They need a place of escape from their last port of call, Iconium, and Lystra is nearby, and so they go there. They have had quite a mission tour, what we call the first missionary journey. They have experienced the hand of God surely, but they have also endured trauma and trial. They have just narrowly escaped a plot in Iconium, a plot to kill them by stoning. Surely they could be forgiven for kicking back a bit, relaxing, taking a break, slowing down. After all, this is not an important city. It's, it's not on their itinerary. Why not lie low, refuel, rest? But these two disciples have mission in their bones. They are faithful in mission. And so before you can say a good night's rest at a flea bag inn, they continue that mission. Luke's account is spare. Acts 14 Verses 5 to 7 speak of their ministry in Iconium like this. And I quote from the New International Version here. There was a plot afoot among both Gentiles and Jews together with their leaders to mistreat them and stone them. But they found out about it and they fled to Lycaonian cities, the Lycaonian cities of Lystra and Derbe, and to the surrounding country where they continued to preach the gospel. Don't be surprised if your risen Lord calls you to be faithful in mission. There are, as you know, hearts to be stirred, minds to be convinced, and lives to be changed right here in Rockland, right here in Sacramento. And God will call you afresh to join Paul and Barnabas across the centuries in being faithful disciples and faithful in mission. As I read the initial verses of the story of Paul and Barnabas's mission in Lystra, verses 8 through 10, I'd like you to do what is probably impossible and ignore the story of the healing for the moment and focus on Paul's preaching, his proclamation of the gospel in Lystra, verses 8 through 10. In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him 
saw that he had faith to be healed and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. The story does not tell how long Paul and Barnabas preached in Lystra before the miracle. But at the end of the story, we are told that they had gathered a group of Christian disciples in the city, in the town. And I suspect they had done so prior to the miracle by being faithful in proclamation. They preached the full gospel. They preached about God as creator. They pointed to his actions in his son, Jesus Christ. They tell of Jesus' death. They proclaim his resurrection. They preach Jesus and call the citizens of Lystra to faith in him. And they nurture a little group of people who respond positively to that message. They are faithful in proclamation. Has God only called apostles to preach the gospel? Or is the gospel commission for all Christian disciples? We are to share with Paul and Barnabas the commission to preach the good news. We are called to be faithful in proclamation, to preach the old, old story to some who hear it as a brand new tale. Well, back to verses 8 through 10 again. But this time, let me release you to think about the the, the, the interesting, fascinating, transforming miracle that happens there. In Lister there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. The Greek text actually begins like this. And there was a certain powerless man in Lystra. Uh, This one, this man, had always been powerless. He sits because he cannot stand. Paul is the model preacher here. He's, He's making eye contact with his audience. He's canvassing every heart. And as he looks into this man's eyes... He sees, telegraphed by the misty response, that this man has faith in the message that he is proclaiming. The Spirit has birthed faith in Jesus into this heart. Translators of the passage are polite for the Greek verb that describes Paul's behavior toward the crippled man man means to fix one's eyes on, to look straight at, to stare. Paul stares at the man. And Paul, surely inspired by the Spirit, commands him to rise, echoing the words of mothers around the globe. Paul commands, stand up straight. Now teenagers everywhere roll their eyes at that motherly command. But the words come to him as a blessed message. This man's mother has never spoken those words to him. He has craved to hear them. The verb Luke uses is the common one used for the resurrection of Jesus in Luke Acts. Stand up, get up, arise. Could it be that 
Could it be that Paul is preaching about the resurrection of Jesus? Could it be that he looks out and sees this believing man at just that moment? Could it be that he grasps a spirit-inspired sermon illustration? What better proof could there be of Christ's resurrection than the raising up of this man? The text says that Paul speaks the command to rise in a loud voice. This is more bold sermon illustration than subtle sideshow. Exciting, transforming moment. And Paul has not misread this man. The man leaps up and begins to walk. Now I've tried to imagine, tried to empathize with that moment in this man's life. And the, the only illustration I've been able to come up with where I, some moment in my life where I felt just a little like he did was when I used to get a new pair of what we used to call tennis shoes back in the day. And back then we were buying Converse tennis shoes, or in the case of my family, knockoff Converse tennis shoes. But you would get those new tennis shoes and you would put them on and you would lace them up. And somehow you would feel like you could run like the wind in those moments. Do you remember that? You would try them out a little, you'd lace them up, you'd, you'd walk a little, you'd run a little, you'd throw a little jumping in to experience those brand new tennis shoes. You've got to try them out. You've got to feel the fresh spring in your step. Can you imagine what it would be like having never walked to have a brand new pair of feet? Not powerless feet, but powerful feet. You would begin to walk, wouldn't you? And you would keep right on walking. You would strut your stuff. And that is just what this man is doing. Paul and Barnabas are faithful in mission, faithful in proclamation, and faithful in miracle working. But surely, surely, preacher, surely you're not going to march down from Walla Walla and tell us we've got to work miracles. This surely is not part of what it means to be a disciple today. Well, well, well. Well, here I need to tell you a little computer story and see if I can gain a little bit of empathy. <laughs> uh, I was preparing this sermon, and right here I remembered some wonderful passages from Ellen White's book, Ministry of Healing, that I, I needed to reflect on. But sad to say, a few days before... My Dell computer had popped up with a little message that I was having some problems and inviting me to reinstall Windows. Now, at this point, of course, I should have taken my computer to the IT guys, but yeah, and, and purchased an Apple. Thank you, Walt. Thank you, Walt. And I am in California, somewhere near the Sil Silicon Valley here. I have to be careful about these things. But the, the installation screen, uh, as I start this process, pops up uh, with a little message, and I, I lose heart and decide not to reinstall, but only to repair Windows. But as you can guess, it was all a terrible mistake, and my little problem became a huge complex of issues. And yes, I did eventually carry my computer to the IT guys, but when I got it back, the sad reality that was that my newly customized, marked-up electronic copy of Ellen White's Ministry of Healing was gone. 
And it has taken me some hours of labor to find these quotations. I want you to appreciate these (laughs) because of the hard work that I have invested in recovering them. Yes, I need to perhaps go back to flat carbon technology. What do you think? So here they are. What, what uh, discipleship and, and, and miracles? And is this part, is this on our is this on our slate today as disciples? I'm moved by Ellen White's words. The same power. The what? Same. The same power that Christ exercised when he walked visibly among men is in his is in you. Well, that's not what this says, right? It says it is in his word. It was by his word that Jesus healed disease and cast out demons. In them, the promises of God's word, he, Christ, is speaking to us individually, speaking as directly as if we could listen to his voice. To one who stands trembling with fear on the brink of the grave, and I'm sorry I don't have this on the screen for you, To one who stands trembling with fear on the brink of the grave. To the soul weary of the burden of suffering and sin, let the physician, and might I add the church elder, the deacon, the church member, as he or she has opportunity, repeat the words of the Savior. Do what? Repeat the words of the Savior. Remember, it is... By his word that Jesus healed disease and cast out demons. And we can at least repeat his words, right? So we repeat the words of the Savior. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Ellen White is placing the words of Isaiah 43 in the Savior's mouth there. And then continuing on here a few pages later in the Ministry of Healing, Ellen White instructs, sympathize with them, the poor, the sick, in their trials, their heartaches, and disappointments. This will open the way for you to help them. Speak to them of God's promises. Pray with and for them. Inspire them with hope. Words of cheer and encouragement spoken when the soul is sick and the pulse of courage is low. These are regarded by the Savior as if spoken to whom? To himself. So I wonder, is it that by God's grace we can't work miracles or is it that we just don't try? Faithfulness. Faithful in discipleship. Faithful in miracle working. Faithful in mission. Faithful in proclamation. Faithful in miracle working. And faithful in crisis. Verses 11 through 13 set the scene for us here. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyaconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer sacrifices to them, to them, and 
there's something wrong there with my sentence, right? Let's just stop it with to them, period. There is a kind of education that will get you ready for good days. You'll learn how to do things right when everything is just right. A kind of discipleship that works when the sun is bright and everything is rosy. But in this hour of earth's history, we need something that goes miles beyond that, do we not? We need an education in the Spirit that works well on the good days and superbly on the bad ones. One that the Spirit buries within our hearts and minds so that in crisis you can go on autopilot and find that the risen Christ is in full control. That's a great challenge for discipleship in the last days, isn't it? And that's why I'm so moved by the next nanoseconds of this story. And they're the most impressive of of all for me because they show that Paul and Barnabas possess just that kind of spirit-inspired discipleship education. As the uproar of blasphemous worship builds... Paul and Barnabas are oblivious. They don't have a clue what's going on. But finally, the din of choreographed worship reaches their ears. They hear of it. And instantly, their God-inspired, Bible-trained, spirit-breathed instincts kick kick in. In that moment, a lot of things (coughs) come together for them. A white-hot hatred for sin especially the sin of blasphemy, replacing the worship of the one true God with the worship of others. An immediate commitment to stem the tide of sin. Instantaneously, instinctively, they draw on their beliefs to avert disaster. Note well, they do not abort their beliefs to save their necks. They draw on those beliefs in the crisis. Verses 14 through 18 of our story. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Continuing on, in the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Paul and Barnabas become the... EMTs, the emergency medical technicians of proclamation, Christian witnessing here. Running into the crowd, they scream their message. They refuse to sip the milk, to accept the homage. On the run, they offer coherent argument. There are two reasons, they say, why you citizens of Lystra should cease and desist in your blasphemous worship. The first is who we are, mere mortals and simply messengers, not of the gods, but of God. The second reason is who God is, the living God, the creator of everything, who has supplied every need. Cease, desist, stop, quit. This Sermon on the Run 
is spirit-inspired and Bible-based. It actually has a text. If you have a Bible with you in hand or on device, turn to Psalm 146. And let me read a few verses there with you. And I think you'll agree with me that their sermon on the run is drawn from this great psalm. Praise for God's help. help. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God all my life long. Do not put your trust in princes, in mortals, in whom there is no help. Please note that point, right? Don't trust in mortals. When their breath departs, they return to the earth. On that very day, their plans perish. Happy are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God, who did what? Made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. Point number two, right? Who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed. And finally, verse 7, Psalm 146, who gives food to the hungry. Do you see those three points? Don't trust in mortals. Trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea, and everything in them. Psalm 146, by the way, is here echoing the fourth commandment. And number three, God. It is God who gives food to the hungry. I think their Sermon on the Run is Bible-inspired, don't you? It has a text. Perhaps Paul and Barnabas had recited Psalm 146 together just that morning in that flea bag of an inn where they were staying. Perhaps they had meditated on its thought, muttered its words, and when the crisis comes, the word is already in their hearts and springs to their lips. What do you think? Now, I know that not all of you regularly read William Tyndall's 1534 New Testament. I know that. It so happens that I'm a big William Tyndall fan, and I do. And as I was studying this passage, I pulled the New Testament, the William, the Tyndall 1534 New Testament, off my shelf and was fascinated to find that in his translation of the New Testament, alongside Acts 14, verse 15, is a simple marginal note. And he had quite a few of those. R-E-V 14. Revelation chapter 14. And alongside, if you go to Revelation chapter 14 in Tyndall's New Testament, alongside Revelation 14 verses 6 and 7 is a matching note which says Acts 14. Isn't that interesting? So for a moment, let's follow William Tyndall's lead here, shall we? Revelation 14 verses 6 and 7 contain an arresting image of an angel streaking through mid-heaven, delivering a strategic message at a moment of crisis. This angel delivers a strident global message about God as creator of the universe. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to, to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7 define our movement, they provide our reason for being. Our mission in the margin of your Bible, though, alongside Revelation 14, verses 6 and 7, perhaps you should jot Acts 14. Because Acts 14 is Revelation 14 in human dress. 
The global message to all languages and people gets translated into the specific message for one language and one people. The clarion call of the airborne angel pierces through the urgent tones of Paul and Barnabas. The distant cry of the angel is personified in the torn garb, sweaty brow, and harried homiletics of these two apostles. Tattered togas, flushed faces, wordsmithing on the run, sprinting speech. In their frantic, urgent message, we read our own. And what a complementary image of our mission. Paul and Barnabas not only confront competing deities, but contrary cosmogenies, stories about how the universe came to be. You see, Zeus and Hermes come complete with a story of the way the universe originated. It sounds like a complex, twisted tale to us. I've tried to simplify it for you. It goes something like this. When Zeus is born, his father Cronus intends to swallow him as he has all of his prior siblings. But Zeus's mother hides him. And when Zeus grows up, he forces his father to vomit up those siblings who, in spite of the passing of decades, are okay. Poseidon, Hades, Hestia, Demeter, and Hera. Zeus becomes the supreme authority enthroned on Mount Olympus. He is the god of the sky, while his brothers Poseidon and Hades control the sea and the underworld. Hermes, son of Zeus, becomes the messenger of the gods, and that's how the universe came to be. That was a short version. I wonder if the current reigning model of evolution is in some ways all that different from this twisted tale. We will, it seems, either worship the creator of all things or we will slowly divinize the processes of nature. We will start to spell evolution with a capital E and nature with a capital N. Ours is the mission of Revelation 14 and Acts 14. To us has been bequeathed the mission of Paul and Barnabas. Against the many gods of our cultures, we offer the one true God. Against the complex and competing cosmogenies of the day, we offer this account of the creation of the universe. God made it. God created all things. To us has been given the task of pouring the urgent message of a gracious creator God who alone is worthy of worship into the obstructed ears of a sacrifice-bent world. We dare not sip the milk. It is our mission to be faithful in crisis. Please, alongside Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7, would you write Acts 14 in the margin of your Bible? Faithful in mission, faithful in proclamation, faithful in miracle working, faithful in crisis, and if need be, faithful unto death. Uh, The next verses, verses 19 and 20. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. Discipleship can be like that, can't it? One minute you are a God, and the next you are a demon, and God calls us to be faithful through it all, faithful in mission, faithful in proclamation, 
faithful in miracle working, faithful in crisis, and faithful unto death. Hours behind the runner in front of him, the last marathoner finally stumbles into the Olympic Stadium. Uh, by this time, the drama of the day's events seem long, seems long past and nearly all the spectators have gone home. This athlete's story, however, is still being played out. Limping into the arena, the Tanzanian runner grimaces with every step, his knee bleeding and bandaged from a fall. His ragged appearance immediately catches the attention of the handful of people still present, and they cheer him on to the finish line. Why? Why was he faithful to cross the finish line? Why did he stay in the race? What made him endure his injuries to the end? When asked this stream of questions, he replies this way, My country did not send me 7,000 miles away to start the race. <laughs> they sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Paul himself reminds us, they do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 25. As I watch that marathoner from the proud nation of Tanzania stumble into the stadium. I see in mind's eye an apostle rising painfully from the ground. I, I watch as sleeves of togas are used to wipe blood from his brow and are shredded to bandage his wounds. I watch as supported on the arms of baby brand new Christians, he struggles courageously back into that city. We are not called to be fast. We are not called to be brilliant. We are not called to be wealthy. We're not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful as disciples of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful in mission. Faithful in proclamation, faithful in miracle working, faithful in crisis, if need be, faithful unto death. By his grace and in his power, may it be true for us. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, I thank you this Sabbath morning that you have issued to each of us the call to be disciples disciples of our risen Lord. And I ask that this ancient, wonderful sketch of what by your grace discipleship can look like might be personified in our lives this week. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.